Good morning. It's good to see you all here, and we are beginning a new series, a little mini-series here at Mars Hill. We just finished up Malachi. I don't know if you enjoyed it as much as I did working through it, but it is heavy. I mean, it's, it's and, and I don't know if uh, we should back up Malachi to James, because James is like punches you in the face, and then Malachi punches you in the gut. And so it's good that we get to the um, Christmas season and get some good, encouraging gospel reminders of all that is true about us that comes to life in James and Malachi, just reminds us of our own depravity and reminds us of what we are up against with our human nature, how God can overcome that in one person. And, and it's the person of Jesus Christ. And of course, that's what we want to reflect on. We're going to begin our Advent series where we're going to move all the way through the Christmas time and then into the new year. And then we'll begin our study of John. And that'll be a lengthy study. And that'll begin um, in January. And we're going to break John up into, I think, we're looking at maybe four different sections. And so we'll, what we'll do is instead of being five years in the book of John, um, we're going to look at the first section and then we'll probably do something, take a break and then jump into the next section and take a small break. And so that's kind of how we're going to break it up so that we are still hitting some other high points of what's happening out there in all of the scripture. So today we want to focus on Jesus as Messiah, as Neil was talking about. I think a lot of times the danger that we have is when Christmas time comes around, there is a danger that we might miss it. And you begin to think, well, how in the world could you possibly miss Christmas? Because, you know, ever since the witches came down at Home Depot, there has been music playing everywhere that you go. And immediately all of the Santa Claus stuff and the blow up Christmas trees. And I mean, it's just there and it's there for at least 60 days before Christmas ever comes around. How in the world could anybody miss Christmas? And I would say the, the danger that we have is we have the same likability uh, or availability to miss Christmas as the original story people missed Christmas. If you think about, I, in particular, I think about the priests, the Levites, um, those who worked in the temple. If you remember, the wise men actually came to them and said, even though this was after Jesus was born, they said, you know, where is the one who is to be born king of the Jews? And of course, they knew exactly what the scripture said. They pointed to it and they said, you know, he's, he's to be born in Bethlehem. And they said, we've seen his star. Well, that was only about five miles from where they were when they were asked that. And none of them bothered to go and check it out. And so I think that you could become so familiar with Christ, so familiar with the story, that you could literally go through this season, go through all the trappings that Christmas has, and completely miss Christmas. And it's a danger that we all have. It's a danger that we have because we've become too familiar with the gospel, maybe. Maybe we become too familiar with the story. I think the danger that we have as Americans, w which is also part of the blessing, we have this freedom to teach, and many of us grow up in church, but I think the, the, the tragedy for some of us is that we heard the gospel before we even realized we needed a gospel, and so we became so familiar with the story before we realized what an incredible story it really is. And, and so I think that that is the danger that we all face, is the familiarity that we have with the gospel and the gospel story. And the same is true when we talk about these themes or these titles that Jesus has. So when we talk about Jesus Christ, I mean, a lot of us think that that's his last name. It's Mr. Christ. Jesus is his first name. Christ is his last name. Because we've heard it so much, Jesus Christ. 
and, and we hear Jesus is the Messiah. But what do those words really mean? Think about this for a moment. As you exit out of the incredible tragedy of the Old Testament, I'm talking about the tragedy of humanity, given choices over and over again and always choosing to rebel against God, even though God was gracious. There at the very end of Malachi, even though we saw that glimpse of the gospel, do you remember the last, last verse of Malachi? It was about judgment coming. It was about God's wrath. That's what the very last part of it said. That's the last sentence. And so we live with this, this expectation that we're never going to meet up to God's expectations. We're never going to hit that bar that he has set for holiness and righteousness. And, and we've had opportunity after opportunity, and none of us have been able to make it. And then we have this period that we call the intertestamental period where there's about 400 years there where there's nothing seemingly happening. And then, all of a sudden, we begin the story of Jesus. I want you to think about how some of the gospel writers begin. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 says this. The book of the genealogy of, what does it say? Jesus Christ. Okay? This is where we get that picture, and that's sometimes where we think it's his last name. But he's not saying this is his last name. Jesus, he's Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, if you are a Jewish person and you're hearing these things, you're thinking in messianic terms. You're remembering that there was a promise that through Abraham, through David, this one was going to come who was going to be the Christ, the Messiah. So right here at the very beginning, Matthew writing to a predominantly Jewish audience says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one, the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He goes on in verse 16 of chapter 1 and says, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called, what does it say? Can you... Yeah, that's where you come in. I hope it's up there. What does it say? Christ, yeah. So twice there at the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, he wants to reiterate that this man is the Christ. This man is the Christ, the one who is promised. So what does that mean exactly? Have we ever really dug down into that? What does it mean that Jesus is called the Christ? What does it mean that he came as Messiah? What does it mean that he is the anointed one? Because that's what Messiah means. The word Messiah, if you were just to really break it down, it means the anointed one. Well, anointed for what is a question that we have. And if he's the anointed one and we are his followers, what does that mean for us that he's the Messiah and we're following him? These are the kind of questions that we should ask when we reflect in a season like this. Or maybe a better question to start with is more basic than that. Who is Jesus? I mean, we, we've become so used to him that we know, well, he's the character in the New Testament. He's the one that does the miracles. He's the one that calls out the 12. He's the one that dies on the cross. He's the one that rises from the dead. But really, we're not asking that what he did. We're asking, who is he? Well, the book of Mark begins by saying this. He is the beginning of the good news. Okay? This is what Mark is writing, the beginning of the good news of Jesus the Messiah. So he directly relates that Jesus the Messiah coming is this good news or this gospel. So first we need to realize that Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's actually this proper title that's attributed to him. Matthew uses the word Christ 17 times. Mark uses it 7 times. Luke uses it 12 times. John uses it 19 times. So the Hebrew word Messiah, which is Mashiach, okay? Now, when you translate the Hebrew into the Greek, okay? So when they, when they make that translation, 
That word in Hebrew Messiah gets translated into Greek as Christos, which is Christ. So when you use the term Christ, you're talking about Jesus as Messiah. Do you understand that? So th those, those two terms are interrelated with each other. So Christ, one commentary says, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Messiah, meaning the anointed one. So Matthew is writing to the Jews of his day and time, and his intention is to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies. All these prophecies that we find that point to a Messiah. And he starts with what he calls the book of genealogy, the book of Genesis, if you will, more literally. The book of beginnings. And it's the beginning of what? It's the beginning of Jesus. It's the beginning of this Christ, this Messiah. And so Jesus is the son of David, he says. Not only that, not only is he the son of David, he traces it back even further and says, this is the son of Abraham. And so if Jesus is the Messiah, and Messiah means anointed one, our next question is this. What exactly does it mean to be anointed? One commentary says this, originally referring to physical anointing, the term took on metaphorical significance as one chosen and appointed by God to be his instrument. Are you, does that make sense? So anointing is this idea of not just the, this magical sense that some power someone has. It is a choosing of that person for a very specific purpose. They are anointed in a very specific way. Another commentary points at uh, the use of this, or how we see it in the Old Testament. Anointing was the designation of something as sacred, as set apart, as special to God. So to be set apart and empowered by God for a very specific task. So who do we find in the Old Testament that's actually anointed, or we see that are anointed for these kinds of purposes? Well, we see prophets are anointed and called by God for very specific purposes. We see priests are anointed and they are called and set apart by God for very specific purposes. And we also see kings who are called of God and set apart for a very specific purpose. So when we talk about prophets, priests, and kings, we are talking about an Old Testament picture of those who are anointed, those who are set apart for a very specific purpose, all of it, the purpose was related to the will of God. So each of these were set apart to God for the service of God for a very special task in that service to God. So they would be referred to in the Old Testament as God's anointed ones. So we have that in the background. So think about that for a moment. Priests, what were they supposed to do? Where priests were the representatives of God. They represented God to the people and they re represented the people to God. So they had this very strong picture of what they were supposed to do, what part they played in this whole story. They were the go-between because the people were not holy enough to approach God. And God was so holy that it would kill people if they ever entered into his presence. So God created this sacrificial system that the priests were supposed to oversee that allowed God's people and God to commune with each other. And God, the people got to learn what pleases God and what God is like and what righteousness is like. What about the kings? Well, did you know that kings were actually called the sons of God? They were literally, the king of Israel was called the son of God. They were literally referred to as a brother king. Matter of fact, when Moses writes about the kingship, he says that this should never, ever be over their brothers, but they should be a brother king. In other words, they are vassals. They are servants. They are there to make sure the rule of God, according to his law, is overseen and administered 
in Israel. What about the prophet? The prophet is the voice of God, isn't he? And sometimes, or almost all the time, the unwelcomed voice of God. Because it's when the people began to stray that God would call out a prophet to call them back. He would speak the truth in an age or a generation where they wanted to hear anything but the truth. And yet God would always raise up this person who was set apart for this purpose to speak this truth to them. Now, it's very important to know that this idea of God sending a Messiah became this huge focus during that 400-so period that we call the intertestamental period, okay? So, so one commentary puts it this way, just to understand it. The term anointed one, which could be used to describe a king, priest, or prophet, came to be used as a technical term in the intertestamental period for this expected agent of God. So again, remember, the Old Testament talks about as early as creation, where it says there's going to be one who comes from the woman, who will be, the, the serpent will bruise his heel, but he will crush his head. Okay, that's the first what we would call messianic passage. That's a picture of the gospel right there. Go beyond that and you see over and over again these promises that there's going to be this one who comes who's going to free his people, who's going to be better than Moses. He's going to be better than Elijah. Over and over again we see these promises and we long to see these promises fulfilled. Well, as you get to that intertestamental period after the Old Testament is closed, more and more people begin to talk about this guy as Messiah, as anointed one, as one who would have a very specific purpose. So to call Jesus the Christ, the New Testament writers are saying something intentional. They're saying something remarkable. They're saying something incredibly weighty. They are saying that Jesus is God's anointed one. That Jesus, as he has come to us, has been set apart for a very special task. So Jesus, if he's the promised one, and all the Old Testament promise of this one who would come and free them, of this redeemer that would come, this rescuer that would come. And, and, and so what they are saying when they introduce him as the Christ, they are saying this is the fulfillment of all those passages. This is the redeemer. This is the rescuer. So Jesus is not just an anointed king. He is the anointed king. He's not just an anointed priest. He is the anointed priest. He's not just an anointed prophet. He is the anointed prophet. In other words, all of those others were just a foreshadowing of the perfect one that was to come, and that is fulfilled in Jesus. So he is the better prophet. He is the better priest. He is the better king. That's what they are stating from the get-go before they even begin the story of Jesus. Jesus was sent by God as the anointed one. And that means that he came with this very specific purpose in mind. So the next question we ask is, what was this specific purpose? I mean, how are we to define it? How are we to understand what Jesus was sent for? What was his role? Well, as the Lord's anointed, set apart for a very specific task, we ask ourselves, what was Jesus literally sent to do? And I want you to think back for our study of Malachi for a moment. Malachi told us that there was one coming who would have healing in his wings. you remember that? And we talked about how that was significant. How there are even some commentators, some biblical scholars that say that literally when you get to the gospel, when you have that widow who, or that lady who has the issue of blood and she comes up and touches the hem of Jesus' garment, there was this, this legend, this story that when this Messiah, this anointed one came, that there would literally be healing in his prayer shawl. Okay? So the, the edge of it is called the knaf, and, and the little tassels that come off of that are called the tzitzit. 
And so the zitzi is literally what she reached out and grabbed. And, and so the reason Jesus says, who touched me, is because, not because he wants to know uh, in this big crowd of people who bumped up against him, but he knows that as he felt that power leave him, he realizes that that person believed that he was the Messiah, that they believed that he was the one who was to come. That's why he pays attention to her, which I think is fascinating about that story. But this goes all the way back to Malachi and what he said. When this one comes, there will be healing in his wings. He would bring about righteousness, Malachi says. Enemies would be trampled, is what Malachi says. So this led to a very high and specific expectation of this Messiah. He was going to be the one, they thought, who would conquer Rome. He would be the one who would purify the nation. He would be the one who would return Israel to her former significance and her glory. So when the gospel writers tell us things like the Christ has been born, a king has been born, the word has become flesh, they are making very astounding announcements. So the announcement is even more shocking when we learn that the Messiah didn't come in this crushing power. He didn't walk out of the hills as some magic man. He didn't ascend from heaven as this incredible conqueror. He comes instead as this feeble little baby to a poor Jewish family born in the outback settlement in Israel. Even beyond that, Jesus was very specific about what he came to do. At the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus was in a synagogue, and they asked him to read the Parsha for that day. This is a section of scripture. So every week in the synagogue, it was, it was already predetermined what would be read that week. Okay? So every week they would read through the Torah, and sometimes, uh, depending on what time period you're talking about, they would read through the whole Torah in a year, and they would start over again at the beginning of the year. Or many times, it was earlier times, it would actually take longer than a year. But there was a certain time they would start back over and they would begin reading the scroll again. Well, Jesus comes into the synagogue and they ask him, because he is kind of like this guest rabbi that has been there, they ask, would you read the, the Parsha that we have for today? And so it just so happened that as he begins to read, that the reading for that day came from Isaiah 61. And it says this in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because, listen to this, the Lord has, what does it say? Anointed me. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And then what did Jesus say as he rolled it up and finished the reading of that day? Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your presence. In other words, God was faithful to what he said was coming. And I am the fulfillment of that. And that's what I've come to do. In essence, we, we sometimes we miss the weighty significance of that moment. But that moment, Jesus was saying, this is the kind of Messiah that I'm going to be. 
All, all these ideas that you got about somebody coming in and destroying the Romans and running them out, that's not the kind of Messiah that I am. That's not what God has sent. God has sent me to do this right here, and he told you a long time ago exactly what this Messiah was going to be anointed to be, and I am the one who is anointed for, to fulfill this. So Jesus was set apart, and he was sent for the very special task of, of mediator. He was spent, uh, sent for the task of being the savior of the world, to restore all that was broken, all that was fractured, all that was fragmented in our world. To bring good news to the poor, it says. To come near to the brokenhearted. To lift up those who have been cast down. To set captives free. To return mourning to laughing. So think about this. If that's what he was sent for, then our next question has to be this. Then who was he sent to? All right? Now you see how this is starting to come together. If that's what he was sent for, then our next question is, who was he sent to? And I think our audience is, is actually depicted for us in that same thing. Notice that he was sent not to the rich, but to the poor. Notice that he wasn't sent to those who had it all together, but he was sent to the broken. Notice that he wasn't sent to those who were free, but he was sent to the ones who were captives. Notice that he wasn't sent to those who were happy, but those who were mourning. This makes sense when we think about the very poor ordinary family that Jesus was born into, Mary and Joseph. We know how poor they were simply because when it came time for the purity sacrifice that Mary would present after she had delivered the baby and, and, and there's this time of cleansing to make sure uh, all the issues of blood and all those kinds of things that Leviticus depicts for us, that there was this time after the birth that you would go and present this cleansing offering. Well, we know that the rich people would offer a bull, the, poor, the middle class would offer a goat, and the very poor would offer a bird. And the pic the, what we know is that she came and she offered a bird. We know that they were the poor. They were the underclass of their day and time. And so think about this for a moment. Jesus came through brokenness because he came to save brokenness. You see that? He came through brokenness because he came to save brokenness. They're literally, their family was the outcast. Theirs were the ones who were poor. They were the ones who were marginalized. They were the ones who were neglected in that system of that day. This also becomes very clear when we take a look at the genealogy that Matthew supplies for us at the very beginning of his gospel. He's very intentional. Matter of fact, he leaves out a lot of big sections of the genealogy because he's being very specific about what he's trying to tell us. And very specifically in his genealogy, he lists four Gentile women. Now, the reason that that's a big deal is because, number one, usually women aren't listed in genealogies. So the fact that Matthew lists them, he's being very intentional. And what he's reminding them of the brokenness and the tragedy of this genealogy of Jesus. I mean, you think about the women that are mentioned there. You think about um, Tamar. Tamar was one who was rejected and marginalized. She did not receive what was due to her, and she literally presented herself as a prostitute to get, uh, to get Judah to do what one of his sons should have done, and, and the whole story just gets really fouled up and nasty, but literally Jesus comes through that line. There's another one mentioned there that her name is Bathsheba. You remember her? What a tragic story that was. Jesus comes through that line. Do you remember our study in, in, the, in Ruth? 
you know, she comes from the Moabites, the rejected Moabites, because of all the harm they had done to the Israelites. She's in the lineage of Jesus. You remember Rahab, the prostitute? She's in the lineage of Jesus. So what you see is all of this brokenness in the genealogy line. Matthew is being intentional to say, Jesus comes from brokenness because he's come to save the broken. That's the picture that Matthew wants us to get. So Jesus came from that which was earthly earthly and real because he came to save that which was earthly and real. Jesus came healing. He came to give strength to the weak. He came healing the wounded. He came to give hope to the desperate, to give peace to the chaos, to give rest to the restless, as Matthew tells us in 11, chapter 11, verse 28. Jesus came as the anointed one, but he didn't come as the liberator from Roman rule. Instead, he came to liberate from the rule of sin, which was a far worse taskmaster. Jesus is a set-apart prophet. He was anointed to tell the truth about humanity and about who he was. And he boldly calls us to repent, to return to God, just like we see in Malachi. But we can't return our own. We are sinful. We are depraved. We will never choose God if it's completely up to us. So how is it then that a sinful man can be reconciled to a holy God? We stand so far off. Well, here's the answer. Jesus is also a better priest. He's the anointed one, not only a sufficient mediator between us and God, but he was anointed to offer a once and for all sacrifice to remove the guilt of sin. But how do we know he's capable of doing this? How do we know that he's capable of accomplishing this task? Why? Because Jesus is also the better king. He was anointed with all authority and with all power to defeat our greatest foes, which were sin and death. Do you see how Jesus was a better prophet, a better, better priest, and a better king? And so the New Testament writers have told us over and over again that there is this direct connection with our understanding of who Jesus is and our salvation. Okay, let me show you a couple of these. Luke chapter 2 verse 10 tells us the good news that Jesus has come in the flesh as the Christ. Listen to what it says. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is, you say it, Christ the Lord. He's the Messiah. Think about what John 20 verse 31 says. It reminds us that the word was given so that we could understand who Jesus was. Verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the what? Christ, the son of God. And that by believing, you may have what? Life in his name. So there's this direct correlation between us understanding Jesus as the Christ and us being saved. 1 John 5, 1 tells us that we must believe in him as the Christ. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the what? Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Matthew 16, 15 through 16 tells us that we have to confess him as Christ. It says in verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the what? Yeah, and he's not just talking about his last name. I mean, that's significant for us to understand. Peter was making a bold declaration when he said, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the promised one, the son of the living God. 
Have you ever experienced the liberating good news of Jesus? Have you ever believed on Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one? God set apart one who was sent to redeem you, to reconcile you to God, to be your priest, to be your king, to be your prophet. Have you confessed Jesus as the Christ? Are you looking for a Messiah to meet your dreams like Israel was in this day and time? Or are you looking for a true Messiah to rescue your soul? Are you looking for a Messiah who will make your current situation better? Or are you looking for a Messiah who will save your soul from an eternal separation from the God who created you? What kind of Messiah are you looking for this season? Are you acting as a functional Messiah on, in your own life? I mean, think about that. What, what I mean by that is, are you functioning as the Messiah in your own life? Are you the long-awaited one? Are you set apart as the sole truth-teller in your own life? Are you set apart as the functional savior of your life? Are you set apart as the sole authority of your own life? Or have you submitted yourself to the Messiah that was promised from the Old Testament, that the gospel writers declare from the very beginning? You see, if this is who Jesus is, then what does this mean for you and for I as followers? Let's say that we understand this. Let's say that we have embraced this fully. And, and we believe that he's the Messiah. And we believe that he has called us and he has saved us. And we believe that we are his followers. So just as Jesus was set apart for a very specific task, think about this. We as his followers are also set apart for a very specific task. It tells us in John chapter 20, verse 19, which we'll get to in about three years. And it says this. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, where they were for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. What is the Messiah going to bring? brings peace. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. He's the better priest who offered the better sacrifice. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm set apart. Even so, I am sending you. Just as I was the set apart one, now you are the set apart one. Just as I had a specific task to fulfill, you now have a specific task to fulfill. What is that task? What is this? Well, this goes all the way back to the garden and what we were originally created for. We were created to be dependent on God. We have to understand that. We have to understand that the constitution of man depicted for us right there at the beginning of Genesis says this. We as human beings were created to worship something. You understand that? We were never created to be worshipped. We were created to worship something. And so what happens is if we trade that worship of Yahweh, the one true God, we will worship something else. And that worship may even be ourselves, but we're going to worship something. And the way we worship it is we give our time and our talents and our resources and our thoughts and our passions to those things that all of those belong to God. And so what happens is we were created, to, not only that, it says very specifically that we were created in the image and likeness of God. And those two words have very specific meanings. And I'm not going to go into it all, but basically what I mean, coming from an ancient Near East uh, 
perspective of what those words mean in that culture is that when you talk about image, you're talking about representation. And when you're talking about likeness, you're talking about relationship. So it tells us when God said, let us create man in our own image and in our likeness, he's saying, let us create man to have a relationship with us and to represent us in the world that he lives in. That was our constitution. That was what was destroyed. Jesus comes and redeems that. And literally, again, you see almost the same proclamation when Jesus ascends into heaven as you saw in Genesis. When, when in, in the scripture, the command that was given to Adam and to Eve was to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. But what you see when Jesus ascended into heaven is he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Make disciples of them. Baptize them. into. So what are we doing? We're being fruitful and we're multiplying as we represent him and as we have a relationship with him. So again, Jesus is restoring what we were originally created to do. So the gospel actually gives us our purpose. We certainly are not the Savior. We're certainly not the Messiah. But we have been sent to the poor, haven't we? Haven't we been sent to the broken, to the captive, to those who mourn both physically and spiritually and emotionally? We have been sent to proclaim the good news that the Messiah has come. He's the one who wants to bind the brokenhearted, the one who can set the captives free, the one who can speak good news to the poor. What a rich thing that we celebrate and reflect upon in this season. But you know what? It's so easy to completely miss Christmas, to completely miss the Messiah, to completely miss what's going on. And if you think about it, there were several groups of people in that original story that missed Christmas. One of them we talked about was the priest. But you know, Herod missed Christmas too. Why? Because he was fearful. He was fearful that this one would come and ruin his life, that would, he would rearrange everything. He didn't like the idea of another king coming in and subverting his own rule. He missed Christmas out of fear, didn't he? Well, you know, the innkeeper seems to miss Christmas as well. And his was probably a lot more in an innocent fashion, but still allowed him to miss it. What was going on? Man, it was busy. Man, it was busy. All these people were coming in, all the rooms were filled, and here comes this couple in, and this lady who's about to have a baby, and he puts them in this, this uh, out, maybe a tent, maybe a, a stable, we don't know exactly what it was, but he, he puts them outside and says, this is all I have right now, and don't you know that he left and went right back to his business? And think about that, I think at Christmas time, we have those same dangers. As the priests were indifferent, we can miss Christmas because we're indifferent. We've become so used to the gospel that it no longer even has a stinger. Maybe we're like Herod. We miss Christmas because we're fearful. Fearful what it would be like to give our lives completely over to Christ, to allow him complete control and authority, to allow him to dictate what our passions will be spent on and what our focus will be and how we spend our money and how we spend our time and how we raise our children. Or maybe you're like the innkeeper. Would you agree that this is some of the busiest time of year? I mean, it is. I mean, you think about it. The most money's ever made is made around this time of year. I mean, we have parties to go to. We've got people to see. We've got trips to make. We get so busy. You see, the reason we miss this whole season is the same reason the original characters and the original story missed it. And if you're not careful, you can very easily flow into that. But part of it is sitting back for a moment, removing yourself from the busyness, and just reacquainting yourself with the incredible beauty and weight of that original story. I want to end today by just showing you a video. 
It's the, from the Gospel Project. We use these all the time. This one is specifically about Jesus as Messiah. So as we finish today, beginning this series of our Advent, I think it would be good for us to just reflect on the whole story. and What does it mean for Jesus to be Messiah? I think this is a good recap of our study that we've gone through here today. And if some of you are more visual than you are auditory, like I am, you'll probably get more out of the video than you got out of the last 30 minutes of me talking. Okay? So let's reflect upon this, and then we will be dismissed.
What a great story to celebrate. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, uh, what a gospel story you have entrusted to us, that you have called us with, that you have saved us with. Lord, forgive us for becoming too familiar with the story, that we could just go about our lives in such temporal ways and oftentimes meaningless ways when we have an eternity to live for. Uh, What we do here, we're laying up treasures in heaven, or either we're laying up treasures here, And you remind us that every decision we make, we're either living for this world or the world to come. And Lord, that's a struggle for us. And you know our hearts and you know our bent towards depravity. You know our love of that serpent and his words. But I just pray that your words of truth would overcome. That those words that are the only truth would pervade our minds and our hearts. And everything that the depravity has done to us. And so in this season, when we have the opportunity to think and reflect on how good you have been, Lord, may we not be distracted by fear or indifference or busyness. But God, may we truly embrace this story that sets us apart as your people with a specific purpose to reflect you and to enjoy a relationship with you as long as we have breath here and into eternity in your presence. And one day... Lord, we know that you're going to right all the wrongs. And we have a kingdom to look forward to that you will set up, that we will be a part of. Thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you for reaching out and redeeming us when we were so far away. And thank you for the constant provision that you give to us as your children. We are thankful for this, and we know it is all ours in Christ Jesus, and it is in his name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance on you and may he give you his peace. Thank you. Blessings as you go in his name.